want to ask you to find Exodus 20 in your copy of the Bible, Exodus 20. We're going to begin looking this morning at 10 Commandments to a More Abundant Life. I'm going to change it from steps to commandments because steps kind of implies they're optional or just good suggestions, and they're not. These are imperatives. These are commandments. And we want to look today at the very first one, the supremacy of God in the life of the believer. The supremacy of God in the life of the believer. And so I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we're actually going to begin at the end of chapter 19, okay? And so if you would find verse 24 of chapter 19... And then this morning we will read down through verse 6. But the Lord said, Go down and bring Aaron back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priest or the people break through to approach the Lord, or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands." Father, we're so grateful for your word. And behind everything that we read in your word, we see the heart of a loving father. And we're grateful for that. Lord, help us to live as your people, your covenant people in a dark and dying world. Lord, help us to be a testimony. Help us to live as you would have your people to live. Lord, I pray for some as we study through these commandments that they would see their sin and their need of a Savior. Because the purpose of these commandments is not to give us eternal life. We see how far short we fall. And so we're driven to your grace and mercy. And God, may it be so for someone here today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Biblical scholar Dr. William Barclay says the following about the Ten Commandments. He he writes, The universal foundation of all things... The basic laws of human conduct in society, the starting point of life for all those people who have agreed to live together in any community, the basis of community existence. That's how he begins in his little book on the Ten Commandments describing what they are intended to do. And how they are the bedrock foundation of any ordered and civil society. These commandments express principles of discipline without which no group of people can ever become a nation. They've been referred to as a charter for democracy. James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, said, We stake the future of this country on our ability to govern ourselves under the principles of the Ten Commandments. Now, folks, I want to begin this morning by giving you a brief introduction on the Ten Commandments. It's actually very important to do so. 
Because these commandments were not given in a vacuum. And so it helps to set the table a bit, so to speak. You see, if we turn in our Bibles and, and, we, and we open our Bibles, the front cover, and turn immediately to Exodus 20 and start reading the Bible there without understanding the narrative before, then we're going to do a, a uh, mischaracterization of these commandments and we're going to misunderstand them. But you see, that's how many people view them. And if you and I do so, we're going to be no better off than the Muslim or the moralist who says, do this and don't do that, and then maybe one day you will be good enough to be saved. So many people view the Ten Commandments that way. They view them as some kind of checklist that if I do all of these things, I will gain for myself eternal life. That is not their purpose. I want you to remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3. He said, no one will be saved by keeping the law. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We sin with sins of commission and sins of omission. Dr. Philip Ryken out of Wheaton College, he points out that the Ten Commandments have multiple uses. First, they show us how God's redeemed people are supposed to live for God's glory. Secondly, they restrain sin in society. And then thirdly, they reveal our need for a Savior because just as I said earlier... We all fall short of God's law. And that seems to be Paul's point in Romans 7 where he says, Do we overthrow the law? He responds by saying, By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And he goes on to point out how the law is what made him aware of his sin and his own need for a Savior. And so Riken points out how law and gospel work together in this regard. The law cannot save. The law drives us to the grace of God in Christ. We see our guilt. We see our condemnation. The Israelites would look forward to a Savior, the coming Messiah, who would redeem them. You and I look back to that Savior, Jesus Christ, because He's already come. Folks, we also need to understand that no one with the exception of Jesus Christ has kept the law perfectly. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that the breaking of the law begins in the heart and mind and with one's motives. For example, he said adultery is not just the act. It's not just the sinful act. He said the sin of adultery, though, begins in the heart. He said if a man looks upon a woman with lust in his heart for her, he's already committed adultery. We must remember where and when these commandments were given. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham... And made a covenant with him. And God told Abraham that his descendants would go into a foreign land and be slaves there for 400 years. And afterwards, God would deliver them and lead them to their own land to be his own special covenant people. Now, by the time we get to Exodus 20, all of that has already happened with the exception of them going into the promised land. That's still yet to come. The Hebrews have been delivered from Egypt in the Exodus. They've been delivered out of slavery, delivered out of bondage. They've journeyed to Mount Sinai and their God gives them these commandments. Again, these commandments were not intended to give them eternal life. They were given to show God's people already in covenant with him how to live together in corporate society. 
If somebody thinks they're saved by keeping of the law, you're going to have a, a great deal of trouble with Abraham. Because you remember what the Bible says about Abraham. You remember what Paul says about Abraham in Romans. Abraham was declared righteous by God 400 years before the law was even given. 400 years, think about that. The law did not save Abraham. He was saved because he believed God and God credited unto him as righteousness. Salvation has always been an issue of faith. I want you to listen to some of the introductory remarks of Dr. Mark Rooker of Southeastern Seminary who has an excellent little book on the Ten Commandments. He begins by saying Ted Turner, the media mogul, wants to suggest to us today that the Ten Commandments have outgrown their usefulness and we no longer need them. Sadly, Ted Turner represents many today. The two greatest rulers of medieval Europe, Charlemagne of the Franks and Alfred the Great of England, both established legal systems based on biblical laws that included the Ten Commandments. The influence of the Ten Commandments has also been felt everywhere across nations today, including the founding of our own country. In 1636, the General Court of Massachusetts argued that the laws of the colony be agreeable to the Word of God, reflecting the common sentiment that all of man's laws have their basis and foundation in God's law. Alan Dershowitz, the Harvard Law professor and media personality, said the Ten Commandments are clearly a precursor to all Western law, including American law. The great reformer Martin Luther made the Ten Commandments the basis of his Christian catechism. Now the phrase Ten Commandments in the Hebrew literally means ten words. And then in the Greek, the Greek translation of ten words is what we have when we, when we read the word decalogue. Ten words. The Ten Commandments are foundational to all the other laws of the Old Testament. In fact, some have even pointed out in the Ten Commandments you have 613 individual letters. And then in the Old Testament you have 613 laws. The fact that God wanted the two commandments, the two tablets rather, of the Ten Commandments placed inside the ark that would then be placed in the most holy place in the temple clearly shows for us the importance that God considers with these words. In fact, folks, these are the only laws, if you stop and think about it, these are the only laws in the Bible where the Bible says that God wrote them himself with his own finger in stone. Now that does not mean that they're any more inspired than the rest of God's word because God used men writing the rest of his word. It's not to imply that at all. But again, it just shows us the importance. God wrote these Ten Commandments himself with, with his finger on tablets of stone and the tablets of stone shows that they are to be permanent laws. Deliberate violation of the first six of the commandments was to automatically bring about the death penalty. Any other law in the Old Testament that prescribed the death penalty had its foundation in the Ten Commandments. Now let's come over to the New Testament a minute. Jesus said that he had not come to abolish the law, but to do what? To fulfill it. The early church accepted the Decalogue as the basis for all of Christian 
ethics. And then again, I mentioned the Apostle Paul earlier. He said in Romans 10 that it was the, in Romans 7 rather, that it was the 10th commandment about coveting that had revealed to him and illuminated to him that he was a sinner and had broken the law of God. Folks, the New Testament nowhere rescinds the ethics of the Ten Commandments. I want you to understand that. The New Testament nowhere rescinds the ethics of the Ten Commandments. In fact, in your New Testament, in some form or another, you will find each of the Ten Commandments repeated in some form or fashion. Now as we come to the Ten Commandments, they can clearly be divided into two major sections. The first section deals with our relationship to God, the vertical. And the second half of the Ten Commandments deals with the horizontal, our relationship to one another. It may be said that the commandments show two basic things, reverence for God and respect for man. Without a manward look, faith would become mysticism. Without a Godward look, faith would become man-centered. And so reverence for God and respect for man must never be separated. Now one of the most debated issues about the order of the Ten Commandments is the placement of the fifth commandment about honoring parents. Many argue that the commandment about parents belongs with the first four commandments concerning God. Children are to obey God's authority and the parent's authority is an expression on earth to the little child of God's authority. Also, life comes from God. And then on the human level, parents are involved in the creation of a child. God and parents both. And so again, many believe that the commandment on parents belongs with the commandment about our relationship with God. Now a case has been made by some that the two tablets of stone may not be what we characteristically think of. Instead of five commandments on one stone and five on the other, all ten commandments might have been on each tablet. You see in in ancient Near Eastern covenants the superior party would make a copy for himself and then the lesser party would have a copy for themselves. That's not that God needed a copy for God if, if that's the way they were divided up it's that God is simply saying This is a record to me of of my covenant obligations to you. And I'm not going to break my covenant obligations to you. And so it could be that, again, the two tablets were ten on each. And both of these to be placed in the ark. Opinions vary on that. Now, the Jewish sages also pointed out that Yahweh is used for God in the first five commandments and that name for God is not used in the last five. They believe that this showed that Israel was the special focus of the first five and because of that, the covenant-keeping name of God was used there. And then even the nations of the world were to live by the last five commandments. And so the covenant-keeping name of God was not used in those five. Also, you'll find in different traditions, the commandments are divided different ways. The Jewish tradition, the Catholic tradition, and the Protestant tradition. In Jewish tradition, verse 2 starts the list. In verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. They put that one first. And then verses 3 through 6 make up one commandment instead of two. 
In the Catholic tradition, everything down through verse 6 makes one commandment. And so then to get ten commandments, when they come to the tenth commandment, they make the law against coveting, they break that up into two commandments. The Protestant tradition that you and I are familiar with divides verses 3 to 6 into two commandments, and the tenth commandment is a single commandment. Now, the last thing I want you to notice about these commandments, they're largely stated in the negative. Now, that's brought about criticism today of the ten commandments by a society that does not like negatives. But you know, society's rebellion in itself shows us the real beauty and wisdom of negatives. Man needs boundaries. Man needs laws. The negatives show that these forbidden tendencies are already in the heart of fallen man. Man needs to be shown that these tendencies are corrupt and wrong and will ultimately be the downfall of society if not held in check. We need laws. We need commandments. We need negatives. I mean, just think of a football game. We're in playoff season. What if in a football game there were no rules, no laws, no negatives? Hey, let's jump on the quarterback and break his arm so he can't throw a touchdown pass. Hey, just anything goes. Everybody make up your own rules. We have negatives all over the place in society. Why should God not give us negatives? Somehow we think in society we're not to have rules and we kid ourselves into believing that a society without rules and laws will end up with something other than utter chaos. Folks, let me encourage you to do this. When you read these negatives, I want you to see in behind these negatives the heart of a loving father. Let me give you an example. What if you had small kids at home and your yard was surrounded on all sides by a busy boulevard and your kids loved to go out in the yard and play but they couldn't because of the busy street and so you build a fence around the yard and you say now kids because I've put up a boundary you can go outside and play in the yard and have fun. You see it's a loving father who built the fence. And that's what God has done. And so again, I want you to see the heart of a loving father behind each commandment. We should also see something of God's character and holiness when we read the Ten Commandments. God is a holy God and He has standards of holiness for those who claim to belong to Him. Now, folks, with those points made, let's begin. Look again at, at verses 1 to 3. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. The first thing I want you to see there is the proclamation. Notice how these commandments begin. These commandments do not begin by trying to argue for the existence of God. They assume the existence of God. God's existence is proclaimed. It reminds me of Genesis 1.1 that says, In the beginning God. Psalm 53.1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. A man who denies God is a fool. Atheism is not a problem of the head. It's a problem of the heart. Because men know that there is a God. All around us is evidence of God. 
It reminds me of what somebody asked an Arab one time. They said, how do you know that there's a God? And the Arab believer said, how do I know whether a man or a camel walked in front of my tent last night? He said, I wake up in the morning and I see the footprints and I know whether it was a man or a camel. Well, folks, we see the footprints of God all throughout the universe. Notice what God goes on to say here in this proclamation. He says that he is Jehovah or Yahweh. In fact, he says, I am Jehovah Elohim. Jehovah or Yahweh is the second name for God that is used in the Old Testament. When Moses asked God, who shall I say is sending me to deliver Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh, God said, tell them that I am has sent you. I am Yahweh or Jehovah as it's sometimes said. The God who was the God who is, the God who always shall be, the one who is eternal, the one who is self-existent, the one who is Lord over all of the universe. That's the God who is sending you, Moses. This name was used more than 6,800 times in the Old Testament. Apparently, it was the favorite name for God. And one can see why. It's the name that God used to describe himself as the self-existent one who enters into a loving covenant with his people. Folks, if God did not act as Jehovah God, we would have no hope of ever knowing him. Secondly, he describes himself as Elohim. In fact, here's how the commandment literally reads in the Hebrew. I, Yahweh, your Elohim. Now, Elohim was the very first name of God used in the Bible. In Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created. The word there, the name for God is Elohim. Elohim is the name for God that is used of God being the strong and mighty creator. He's the creator of everything. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. When you look into a telescope and you see the vastness of the universe, God made all that. When you look in a microscope and see how tiny things are, God made all of that. He's Elohim. He's creator God. He's almighty God. And so you see what God is doing here by putting these two names of himself together. He's saying, I'm Elohim, the creator, the almighty God of the universe, the God who made everything, but I'm also Jehovah God, the covenant-keeping God who enters into a relationship with you. Both of those names are very significant. God's establishing his superiority over everything and everyone. Now that's going to make the prohibition that we're going to talk about in a moment all the more understandable. But he's not done yet. When he says, I, Yahweh, your Elohim, he goes on to describe himself as the Redeemer there in verse 2. What did God do? God brought them out of Egypt. God brought them out of the land of bondage and he brought them into freedom. He delivered them from hopelessness and he gave them a hope and a future. They had witnessed God do so much in their lives. I mean, think about all those plagues that God brought on Egypt. And then God delivered them, led them to the Red Sea and parted the waters of the Red Sea. They had witnessed that. They had witnessed God giving them bread and water and meat in the wilderness. They had literally seen God meet every need that they had. God had redeemed them. And so again, God is setting forth for them the kind of God that He is. He's not cold. He's not distant. He's not mean. 
At Christmas, what have we celebrated? Emmanuel, God with us. God is their Redeemer who's delivered them. I mean, think of how it all begins in Exodus 1. God heard the cries and the groanings of His people and He took note of their oppression and He cared. And so He sent them a deliverer and God delivered them. He is a God who redeems. Yahweh. Covenant-keeping God, Elohim, Almighty God, Creator of everything, Redeemer God, the God who loves you and has saved you. Folks, in the New Testament, you and I can say the very same thing. I think of what Paul says there in Ephesians 1. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son Jesus. Folks, you and I today can sing a song of deliverance just like The Hebrews could. Amen? In a very real sense, we've had our own exodus out of the world. Oftentimes, Egypt is a picture of the world and and Pharaoh a picture of oppression, uh, especially Satan and his demonic forces at work in us. And and we're the oppressed people of God. But, But God in Christ, Christ is one that is greater than Moses and he has delivered us. And brought us out into a relationship with the Heavenly Father. We can sing of the same redeeming God that the Israelites could. We've been bought with a price. Folks, God has the right to establish all of these commandments. God has the right to tell us what to do and what not to do. You didn't create yourself, God did. You didn't save yourself, God did. You belong to God. He is Lord and Savior and Master. He's also your loving shepherd. He has the right to say, have no other gods before me. If we were to stand for the next five hours and everybody tell the great things that God has done in their lives to deliver them, we could be here for five hours. It would be no problem in a crowd this size if we were to stand up and proclaim the great things that our God has done for us. He's the Lord our God who's delivered us. Well, secondly, I want you to see the prohibition. The prohibition. Look at verse 3, what he says there in verse 3. He says, you must not have any other God but me. No other gods but me. A man purchased a statue of Christ at an auction and he placed it on his desk in his office. His wife was cleaning and she moved the statue to another room. The man moved it back. When the little girl saw the man moving the statue of Christ back, she said, Dad, where are you going to put God now? Well, God tells us at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments where we're to put Him. We're to put Him what? First. He's to be first. 
He will not play second fiddle. He will not stand in line behind other things for your affections. He and He alone has given us life and redeemed us. Now folks, the truth of the matter is Israel needed to be reminded of this. Have no other gods but me. They needed to be reminded of this. Why? Because they had come out of a nation of idols. It's said that in ancient Egypt there were more than 2,000 idols, more than 2,000 gods that the Egyptians had. They had been immersed in idolatry, a nation of idolaters, for over 400 years. Every one of the plagues that God brought on the Egyptians, God was challenging one of the false gods of Egypt, showing that those gods were no gods at all. And where is it that the Israelites were headed to? They were headed to Canaan. Canaan, the promised land, was a land of idols. In Canaan, Baalism was the big idol. Baalism and his female counterpart, Ashtoreth. Baalism was basically a fertility cult. The Canaanites saw the changes of the seasons, the crops being harvested, the rain, the sun, and so forth. And they concluded that the most mysterious force in life is growth. What is it that makes the corn grow, the grape swell, the olive ripen? And their answer to this is that Baal is at work. Baal and his female counterpart, Ashtoreth, are having sexual relations in the heavens and the fertility is coming down to the earth. And the Canaanites would engage in sexual practice as part of their religion because they thought this would please Baal and bring further fertility to the earth. That's the kind of nation that the Israelites were getting ready to go into. They've come out of a nation of of idols and false gods. They're going into a nation of idols And false gods. And so what is it that they need to be reminded of? They needed to be reminded that there is no God but their God. Yahweh is the only God. He's the true and the living God. And they are to keep him first and foremost in their lives. And there is to be no rival in their minds or hearts to Yahweh. They must not forget God. They've been created for fellowship with God. They've been made in the image of God. They've got a soul and a spirit that longs for fellowship with God. You see, folks, in every culture, men will worship something, won't they? Since the fall of man, Satan uses this, that we will create gods in our own image. Paul talks about that in Romans 1, that when we reject the gospel, then we will in turn embrace anything. And we will make idols and we will make false gods out of ourselves and the works of our hands and things in creation. And they're being reminded they must not fall into this trap. It must not happen. And folks, it must not happen to you and me. Are there any rivals to Jesus Christ in your heart? Are there any false gods? Is there anything you put ahead of Him? What do you give your affections to? Your supreme allegiance to? That's your God. There's some question about the translation of this verse. 
Is God saying, have no gods in place of me? Is he saying, have no other gods before me in my presence? Have no other gods that rank higher than me? Have no other gods but me? The answer to all of those questions is yes. However you translate it. The answer is yes. Have no other gods but him. Have no other gods in his presence. Have no other gods that rank higher than him. Have no other gods but him. Have no other gods, period. He's the only one. You say, preacher, I've got this one made. Do we really? Think about your time. Think about your energies. Think about your pocketbook. Do you do other things when you should be getting to know God? Now, don't misunderstand me. We can't live in a monastery. I'm not even suggesting that. I'm not suggesting you can't have hobbies. I'm not suggesting you can't skip church when you go on vacation. I'm not saying of any of those, any of those things. Don't go out of here suggesting that I am. But I'm saying if you really take a close look at your life, you might see that there are some some things in your life, some affections and devotion that mean more to you than God. You probably have some idols in your life. In closing, let me spend a few minutes being both general and specific about some of these things. We must resist possessions being an idol. Leslie Flynn said some of the gods of our life are chrome plated. Others involve bucket seats, high powered engines, large estates, stock markets, the latest fashion, large screens, antiques, gardens. Dr. Stanford Reed of McGill University wrote, The principal false god of our times is our standard of living. We are so concerned with material possessions that we forget that they are a gift of God and that there are other things more important. Folks, there is nothing wrong with having things, but it's wrong when things have you. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Lay up your treasures in heaven where moth and and rust don't destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal. He said, store up your treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you have idols of possessions? We must also resist idols of pleasure. Now, folks, it's true that all of us need some kind of diversion from the monotony of life. Your relief valve may be golfing or gardening or boating or fishing or cars or some other hobby that gives you enjoyment. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But even legitimate pleasures and hobbies can grip and captivate our hearts. We've got to remember what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He said, in the end of times, these days will be characterized that men will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Self-gratification is the God of many. Their God is they just want to go through life and have fun, have a good time. Men and women today will sit at ball games. Anything wrong with that? No. They'll sit at ball games and cheer if the game goes in to overtime. They'll come to church and have one foot in the door and one foot out. They're already thinking about what they want to get out and do. I'm not suggesting that services can't go too long. But I'm suggesting if you come to church with that attitude, you've already got a door, a foot out the door, you may want to examine what's in your heart. Are you really here for God? Or is he just something to check off your list and get done so you can get out in life and get back to your pleasures? The S word today, 
when we think of pleasure? Sex. Anything wrong with that? No, within the boundary of marriage. Have you noticed how sex is used today to to sell just about... What in the world does sex have to do with selling an SUV or a tube of toothpaste? Can you tell me what sex has to do with that? Don't don't answer that question. (laughs) And look at how everybody's so consumed today with their body and young women under the pressure that their body's got to be perfect all the time. We're such a sex-driven culture. Again, here's something intended for marriage. Society today even wants to change the rules of that. Society thinks they know better who ought to be involved in marriage or what marriage ought to be. Folks, God's the one who created it and defined it. Amen? We must reject... Or resist projects becoming idols. Some people get all wrapped up in worthy causes that then become their life. It might be a political party, little league, the arts, saving the whales. Again, nothing involved in being involved in the culture and then trying to be salt and light through that. Listen to me carefully here for a moment. I think it's safe to say all these famous people going around. Have you noticed how so many of these famous people... Everybody's got a cause. For some of them, could that not be an indication? They've got a a God-shaped vacuum inside and they're trying to fill it with something important. And what they're looking for is a relationship with God and they don't even realize it. Beware if you are all about causes And not ultimately about Jesus. We must resist prominence becoming an idol. I'm almost done. Some people worship status. Even the Pharisees in the New Testament world. They loved the chief seats. Some people live today to become the CEO or the top salesman or the best at that or the best at this. Am I saying that we can't strive for excellence? I'm not saying that either. Christians ought to strive for excellence. What I am saying is beware if if that prominence in some way, that becomes the driving force in your life, that everything in your life is centered around that. All of these things can become gods. And in verse 3, he said, You are to have no other gods but me. You see, God loves us. He made us. And God is a jealous God. Is he on some kind of ego trip? No. But whatever we allow to take his place in our lives, he knows that it'll end up never satisfying us and it might even destroy us. God knows that. We must lay all of our idols aside and have no other gods but him. There's a parable about a church service. They said they were going to have an idol burning ceremony. Everybody was to bring their idols from home and pile them up in the backyard of the church and they were going to set fire to them and burn them. And so that's what everybody did. They got them all piled up and they realized nobody had a match. So they decided it was getting late. We'll go home. We'll sleep. We'll get up first thing in the morning. Everybody meet here and we'll... Strike a match to the idols. One lady tossed and turned all night long. She finally convinced herself in the wee hours of the morning that her idol that she had placed on the pile really wasn't an idol at all. It was, it was okay for her to have. So she gets up early the next morning. She decides at daybreak she's going to sneak out to the church and Get her idol before anybody else gets there. And she gets to the backyard of the church. 
And her idol is the only one left. We must put down the idols of our hearts and lives and walk away from them. No other gods but Jehovah God who loves us and has redeemed us through the shed blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. God has the right to your service and devotion. If somehow or another it were possible for you to give God every second of every hour of every day of every week of every year for your entire life, would that be God asking too much? No. I also want to remind you, you have a story of deliverance to tell. For centuries in the Old Testament, the Exodus was Israel's story of deliverance. Whether in historical narrative, whether in Psalms, whether in prophets, they would retell the story over and over and over again of God delivering them from the land of slavery and making a people out of them. Folks, you and I have the same story. God in Christ has delivered you and made a covenant people out of you called the church made up of the redeemed. You've got a story to tell. Don't ever forget that. Worship Him. This year, commandment number one, what do you need to do to have no other gods but Him? He's going to be first in your life. Now folks, don't forget, the law cannot save. It's not even its purpose. The law should drive you to Christ. If you've not seen in the law, it's like a mirror. You look in it and you see how, how much you've sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you cast yourself upon God's mercy in Christ. That's what it's supposed to do. If you're still trying to obey the commandments that you might have life, it'll never happen. Come to Christ. Would you stand please? Father, speak to our hearts that you would be supreme in our hearts and lives. That there would be no rivals. Lord, help us not to be like that lady in that parable I closed with that she convinced herself that her idol wasn't really an idol. Lord, help us to call the idols what they are and lay them aside. In Christ's name we pray.